you knew, you and the FBI. I understand your frustration. You understand my frustration, you papa son of a bitch. What the fuck did Leary do for you anyway? Run coke for the Contras and sell arms to Iran? It's a C-12 matter, so this is off the record. Fast, I'm gonna deny it. Leary's what we nowadays call a wet boy. What's a wet boy, Frank? Leary's an assassin. In Leary's case, I spit it too gently. He's more like a predator. Why is it everyone who ever knew you said that you're a sick son of a bitch? Your colleagues, your wife? Uh, what does your wife say about you, Frank? Oh, we're not talking about me. Frank, you of all people, I want you to understand. Because we both used to think that this country was a very special place. You don't know what I used to Oh, but you know about me? Do you have any idea what I've done for God and country? Some pretty fucking horrible things. I don't even remember who I was before they sunk their claws into me. That made you into a real monster, That's right? That's right. And now they want to destroy me because we can't have monsters roaming the quiet countryside now, can we? What do you see when you're in the dark and the demons come? I see you, Frank. I see you standing over the grave of another dead president. That's not gonna happen. I'm on to you. Fuck you, Frank. I am willing to trade my life for his. I am smart and I am willing and that is all it takes. That president is coming home from California in a fucking box. Where in California? Uh, the address? Come on, Frank. I'll keep you in the game, but I'm not gonna throw it for you. I want you to give yourself up. So I can live a long and fruitful life? Oh, we can work something out. Fuck it. Frank, don't fucking lie to me. I have a rendezvous with death. Oh, and so does the president. And so do you, Frank, if you get too close to me. You have a rendezvous with my ass, motherfucker. Frank, Frank. Do you know how easily I could kill you, Frank? Do you know how many times I've watched you go in and out of that apartment? You're alive because I have allowed you to live. So you show me some goddamn respect! A school for assassins. The cryptocracy recruited their assassins from among people who had already demonstrated a violent nature. 
people who had few reservations about taking human life. No homicidal maniacs were recruited because they could not be controlled. The cryptocracy needed killers who would not murder on impulse, but only upon command. Once selected, the assassin candidates were turned over to the military where, under the guise of combat readiness training, they underwent a complete program of conditioning. Graduates of the program worked forever after the act with ruthless efficiency. They would eliminate local political leaders in a foreign country or undertake search and destroy missions in violation of national and international laws. They would be given a cover allowing them to enter the foreign service or they would pose as embassy marine guards. In July 1975, the Sunday Times in London quoted a U.S. Navy psychologist who admitted that U.S. naval intelligence had taken convicted murderers from military prisons, conditioned them as political assassins, and then placed them in American embassies around the world. This admission came shortly after the Senate Intelligence Committee had scolded the CIA for plotting a number of political assassinations around the world. From the congressional reports, however, one got the feeling the cryptocracy was being chastised not for the assassinations it had successfully accomplished, but for those which it had attempted but failed. The attempts on the life of Fidel Castro drew the greatest notice from the congressional committee and the press. According to the Sunday Times story, Naval Psychologist Lieutenant Commander Thomas Nehru was assigned to the U.S. Regional Medical Center at Naples, Italy. When he first made public the Navy's part in programming assassins, he was attending a NATO conference in Oslo on dimensions of stress and anxiety. In attendance at that conference were 120 psychologists of all descriptions and from many countries. Many of them were involved in research on how to improve man's ability to cope with stress, but none of them felt compelled, as Nehru did, to discuss their work so fully and so frankly. The stated objective of the conference was to exchange information on how soldiers and people in difficult jobs could cope with stress. Dr. Nehru's talk was on the use of a symbolic model and verbal intervention in inducing and reducing stress. His speech began with a plug for the Navy. He knew had said that many of the scientists presented had often encountered problems in their purely scientific research because of the military's inclination to research that would yield quick and useful results. He sympathized with those who had trouble getting subjects, funds, or both out of the military for their purely scientific research. But things were different in the Navy, he said. In the Navy, Nehru bragged, there were plenty of captive personnel who could be used as guinea pigs. In the Navy, there was a computerized record of each man's background and psychological profile, so a quick selection of men with subital psychological inclinations for experiments could be made. Navy psychologists not only had access to computerized records, but also to psychological tests and background data on a large number of people. In the Navy, Nehru said, funds were plentiful and there were no problems with transporting subjects for study to nearly any place in the world. Nehru stated proudly that the U.S. Navy provided scientists with the most advanced research facilities in the world. A Canadian psychologist at the conference later remarked, Nehru's message was loud and clear. Join the Navy and study the world. In his brief discourse, Dr. Rue did no more than hint at the work he had been doing teaching combat readiness units to cope with stress of killing. Later, however, during private questioning with a small group of listeners, reporter Peter Watson of the Sunday Times, a former psychologist among them, Nehru unfolded the amazing story of the Navy's programming of assassins on an assembly line basis. 
In his mid-30s, Dr. Rue had just completed his doctoral dissertation on the question of whether certain films provoke anxiety and whether forcing a man to do irrelevant tasks while watching violent films would help him cope with the anxiety they produced. When pressed by Watson's explanation, the details of this kind of conditioning, Nehru said he had worked with combat readiness units, which included men being programmed for commando-type operations and for undercover placement at U.S. embassies. These, Nehru said, were hitmen and assassins. Nehru's words, made ready to kill in selected countries should the need arise. Dr. Alfred Zitani, an American delegate at the conference, was very surprised by Nehru's disclosure. Do you think that Dr. Nehru realizes what he has just said? Zitani asked. This kind of information must be classified. The conditioning of Nehru's assassins was accomplished by audiovisual desensitization, a standard behavior modification process. These men were desensitized to mayhem by being showed films of people being killed or injured in numbers of different ways. At first, the films would only show mild forms of bloodshed. As the men became acclimated to the scenes of carnage, they would see progressively more violent scenes. The assassin candidates, Nehru explained, would eventually be able to dissociate any feelings they might have from even the gruesome scenes they viewed. Nehru said that, of course, U.S. naval psychologists would have first selected these candidates for training by their psychological makeup. Those selected for assassination assignments were often from submarine crews and paratroops. Others were convicted murderers from military prisons who had already shown a proclivity for violence. Still others were men who had been given awards for valor. World War II Medal of Honor winner Audie Murphy was a subject of extensive research. The best killers, according to Nehru, were men who psychologists would classify as passive-aggressive personalities. These were people with strong drives, usually kept under tight control. Such types were usually calm, but from time to time would exhibit outbursts of temper during their which they could literally kill without remorse. Nehru said that through psychological testing, he and his colleagues were looking for more such men for further conditioning. Among the tests used by a Navy to determine more violent natures was Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, which is used widely by educators and businessmen to determine psychological qualities of students and employees. The tests consist of hundreds of questions designed to measure such personality traits as hostility, depression, psychopathy. According to Nehru, the men selected by the test, or by evidence of past violence, were taken for programming to the Navy's Neuropsychiatric Laboratory in San Diego, California, or to the Naples Medical Center, which employed Dr. Nehru. Audiovisual desensitization was the major technique used in programming assassins. Psychological indoctrination completed the programming by instilling the desired prejudicial attitudes. The audiovisual desensitization began with the subject strapped into a chair with his head clamped so he could not look away from the screen. A special mechanism preventing the subject eyelids from closing, as depicted in the film *A Clockwork Orange*. The candidate was then shown a film of an African youth being crudely circumcised by fellow members of his tribe. The youth was circumcised with a blunt knife, painfully and without antiseptic. This well-known film is used widely in psychological experiments to create stress. Afterwards, the candidate was asked about the details of what he had seen. He was asked, for example, to describe the color of the belt on the doctor's trousers or the motif on the handle of the knife which had cut off the foreskin. The next film showed a man and a sawmill where planks were being sliced from huge logs. In their operation, he saw a man slipped and cut off his fingers. 
As the film progressed in gruesomeness, the reactions of the candidates were measured by sensing devices. Heartbeat, breath rate, and brain waves were recorded very much on a polygraph. If the physiological response might have been great in the beginning, slowed down and resumed normal patterns as the more bloodthirsty scenes were viewed, the candidates were judged to have completed this stage of conditioning. The last phase of conditioning, Nehru said, was to indoctrinate the candidates to think of to their potential enemies as inferior forms of life. By this stage, the candidates would have already been selected for assignment to particular countries. They would be shown films and given lectures which portrayed the customs and cultural habits of the foreign countries in a biased fashion. The people of those countries would be portrayed as enemies of the United States and were always spoken of in demeaning terms. They were often presented as if they were less than human. Their customs were ridiculed and their local leaders were presented as evil demagogues even though they were legitimate political figures. According to Dr. Nehru, it took only a few weeks to indoctrinate susceptible candidates by this process. Those who were not susceptible to the conditioning were dropped earlier in the program and then returned to other assignments. Nehru admitted that he did not have the necessary need to know as to where all the program men were sent, although at one point in his conversation with Peter Watson, Nehru specified that programmed assassinations had been installed at the Athens Embassy. He said the busiest time was when a large group of men went through such training towards the end of 1973 at the time of the Yom Kippur War. After the Oslo conference interview, Watson returned to London to file his story. Writing up the details, he found a few points which needed clarification, but he could not reach Nehru either at his home or at his laboratory in Naples. Watson then asked the U.S. Embassy in London to comment on the information Nehru had volunteered. The embassy passed the buck to the U.S. Navy. Within a few days, the Pentagon issued a categorical denial that the U.S. Navy had ever engaged in psychological training or other types of training of personal assassinations. They also denied any such training had ever taken place either in San Diego or Naples. They said that two had been unable to connect with Lieutenant Commander Nehru, but they did confirm he was on staff at the U.S. Regional Medical Center in Naples as a psychologist. But Dr. Zitani later offered to testify about what Nehru had told him to appropriate authorities. Watson was also approached later by a psychologist in Los Angeles who said that he had seen the Pentagon denial, so thought Watson would like to know that he had lent the San Diego psychologist a copy of his film on circumcision, which was used in the desensitizing conditioning. A few days later, Nehru was located. He flew to London to discuss the matter ostensibly with Watson's paper, the Sunday Times, but instead he held a press conference saying only that he had been talking in theoretical and not practical terms. He then flew back to the Naples base. After his return to Naples, U.S. Naval Headquarters in London offered the official explanation for Nehru's statement. Nehru had personal problems. A few days later, Watson was able to contact Nehru at the U.S. hospital in Naples, but he refused to elaborate on his disclosure. During the Oslo conference interview, Nehru had said several times that what he was saying about the assassination was coming out anyway. He was referring to the congressional disclosures about CIA assassination plots, but the fact that the Navy had been operating along lines similar to the CIA was not known to the public, nor has it subsequently been admitted. The details of the story that Lieutenant Commander Nehru related have been strongly and categorically denied in all subsequent queries of the Navy. It came as no surprise to many that the Navy had been interested in psychological research to help its men cope with stress. Several years before, 
One of the organizers of the Oslo Conference, Dr. Erwin Sasseron, had been approached by the Navy to work on a project similar to Nehru's. At the time, the Navy had said nothing to him about program assassinations. It said it wanted him to adapt his work for applications to spies. In response to that request, Saracen devised a film which showed how successful students asked questions in school. The film was shown to a group of juvenile delinquents for a period of time until they too learned how to pose the right questions. As a result, over the next two years, they did much better in their studies and got in trouble less. The control group, who had not seen the films, just did as poorly in school as they had always done and were just delinquent. Since his symbolic modeling study had been successful, Saracen wanted to continue his research and applied to the Office of Naval Research for more funding. A few weeks later, after his application had been received, Saracen was called by the Navy official who asked him if he would object to having his work classified. Saracen wondered why, and the Navy office told him his research would be most valuable to the Navy's neuropsychiatric laboratory in California as spies were being trained there to resist interrogation. The naval official said that if Saracen would allow his work to be classified, he'd get all the funds he needed. But Saracen was interested in the peaceful scientific nature of his work, not its military applications, so he refused to have that project classified. His goal was the exception rather than the rule. The federal government supports most scientific research in the United States. Enough psychologists and other social scientists haven't asked questions about what their research is to be used for. Their main objective has been to get the grant so they could support themselves and their scientific curiosity. Since too many of them have been politically disinterested or naive, they have been easily prey for the cryptocracy. Lieutenant Commander Nehru was therefore but one in a long line of psychologists being employed for psychological warfare and illegal clandestine operations. Another sub-operation was the training of security officers at the Washington-based Interpersonal Police Academy where psychologists and sociologists gathered. The officers were supposedly being taught interrogation techniques for third world countries. Actually, it was a highly sensitive clandestine operation organized for the training of U.S. spies. Congress closed the academy on January 1, 1974, after its real purpose was disclosed to the press. Another uncovered in the late 1960s was Project Camelot, reportedly a sociopolitical analysis of Chilean but actually designed to keep Chile free from communist leaders by discrediting them. Project Camelot played an important role in the overthrow of Salvador Allende and his democratically elected leftist government. In 1975, Congress questioned the Navy about its development of the questionnaire to survey attitudes toward death. Congressmen had learned that psychologists were eagerly working on such a questionnaire, known as value of life study that would allow the Navy to assess a recruit's willingness and ability to kill from the Navy from the very first day he entered the service. And still another government-funded experiment, psychologists working for the Human Resources Research Organization in Alexandria, Virginia, had conducted a brutal series of stress training experiments in the early 1960s. In one experiment, Army volunteers were taken on an airplane flight. Suddenly, the airplane's engine failed, and the plane was forced to land abruptly on a rough airstrip. The soldiers were later tested to see if this incident had caused a fear of flying. In another experiment, soldiers were taken out and lost in a forest. Suddenly, a huge forest fire engulfed them, so that the men found themselves off course and surrounded by fire. 
These men were tested to see if their experience had given them a fear of fire. In yet another experiment, soldiers were allowed to stray into an artillery target area. Shells were exploding all around them and they had to get out of the area by keeping cool and following orders. Since artillery shells fired from a distance of 25 miles away are hard to control, the explosions were created by detonating underground charges triggered by remote control from a lookout point. After the realistic shelling was over the mirror, the men were tested to see if they suffered an indiscernible shell shock. During all these experiments, the men were under visual observation. In some, they also were telemetry devices which allowed scientists to measure their pulse rate, respiration, and other vital signs to determine the level of stress they were experiencing at the time where they were exposed to the dangers. As this battery of experiments became known to the outside world, public opinion and congressional pressure supposedly brought a stop to them. The military was not deterred, however, from other kinds of cruel and dangerous experimentation. It continued its stress research in spite of the bad publicity. While military stress testing may have developed useful insights into the psychological warfare, its primary goal, as Lieutenant Commander Nehru pointed out, was the programming of assassins. These experiments were most useful in programming those men who were already inclined to kill. Hypnosis was still the only effective tool for motivating those who were not inclined to kill, then for erasing the memory of the crimes for eliciting false confessions. Alarmed by evidence found in the assassinations of John and Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, Dr. Joseph L. Byrne of the Virginia Polynectic Institute questioned leading authorities on hypnosis. In 1968, his focus was on the possibility that hypnosis was used to motivate assassins. Byrne wanted to know if political influences could be induced by hypnosis. Could people be hypnoprogrammed to operate unconsciously and take what seemed to be independent action? Could people be influenced to commit political assassinations as a consequence of hypnotic influence? In his inquiry, Byrne asked authorities to assume that a skilled hypnotist found a subject who is both a good hypnotic subject and highly capable in the use of weapons. They were to assume that the subject also had a deep hatred for some political personality prominent in the news. Byrne's first question to the authorities was, could the hypnotist use hypnotic suggestion to persuade the weapons expert to kill the hated political personality at a time under conditions suggested by the hypnotist? His second question was, could the hypnotic suggestion of this action be achieved in a way which could leave the subject assassin unconscious and unstable to recall to consciousness the fact that his violent act was made as a consequence of hypnotic suggestion? The authorities who responded to Burns' questions stated that they did think it is possible to induce a subject to kill. One expert said, I would say that a highly skilled hypnotist working with a highly susceptible subject could possibly persuade the subject to kill another human. Another expert went further saying it was possible through post-hypnotic suggestion to make a subject unable to recall his act. There could be a conspiracy, one expert wrote, but a conspiracy of which the principal was unaware. It may be well that Byrne hit a nerve in the cryptocracy. His report, Assassination and Hypnosis, Political Influence or Conspiracy, was never published. But despite all efforts of the cryptocracy, slowly, the secrets of the mind control began to emerge. Soon, there surfaced other evidence that there was indeed such things as programmed assassins. One such assassin made bold headlines on the front page of a newspaper in the Philippines. Look deeply, 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 deeper, deeper, 
into the ancient archetype of evil, the inverted five-pointed star. You're getting sleepy. The number is five. Count the points, and so on, and on, and deeper. Thank you.